Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm joined by my co-host, Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber. Well, hold on a second. You mean welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover, and joining me now is Natalie Rodriguez. Hey, Jimmy. Okay, if you haven't caught on, listeners, we have a super show today. We are joining forces. Avenger style, of course. I'm so excited yeah. about this. Uh, I don't know which Avenger everyone would be, but I call the Scarlet Witch. That's the one I want. Is uh, Chris Hemsworth's Thor? Is, that's an Avenger, right? Yeah, you could be I Thor. Would, I would sure. like to claim Thor just because. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a little jealous <laughs> of that guy. Anyway. <laughs> Being the God of Thunder is the only way to get through all this Supreme Court news. We all know it. I'd say that's probably true. Yeah, the reason we are doing a super show crossover style is because this was... I think by all measures, a historic Supreme Court term. We really wanted to break it down fully, kind of take a step back now that the term is over, talk about big themes that we saw, recap some of the biggest cases, talk about where we think the court's going. And we just needed our entire brain trust to do that together. That's right, Amber. I It was such a huge term, as you said. I almost don't even know where to start. Um, I think maybe we start with just kind of looking at some of the big themes, right? The big threads that kind of wove through this term. Jimmy, do you want to kick us off? What was the one big theme that you think really uh, told the story of this term? I mean, the people that I've spoken to in the, over the last several days kind of uh, writing and reporting about some of the key takeaways have all said one thing, regardless of their kind of political persuasion or ideology. And that is, this was a huge term. I mean, it's a pretty obvious takeaway, but it was a momentous one, not just one that will affect the lives of millions of Americans through a variety of different rulings, but it also represented a kind of conservative revolution in constitutional law where now, you know, once kind of fringe uh, judicial methods of textualism, that is looking to the text of law, originalism, looking to the original public meaning of the Constitution to find out, you know, what it means, those have now become front and center in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence across so many of the court's big blockbuster cases. And we're going to kind of break all those down, but that's certainly the biggest one. And, you know, these this is this did not happen by osmosis, by accident. Uh, this was a, a, a term that delivered on long-sought goals by the conservative legal movement. This is a movement that was largely born out of opposition to rulings like Roe that was just overturned in the Dobbs case. And it was only made possible, and again, this might sound obvious to everyone, but I think it's probably worth repeating, that it is the addition of Trump's three appointees to the court who have solidified this new six-justice supermajority for conservatives. So when Justice Barrett joined the court, a lot of people were thinking, you know, what, what really does the addition of one more conservative justice actually mean? And it means that there's now a, enough buffer room so that the court's conservatives can afford to lose someone like Chief Justice Roberts in, you know, the case overturning Roe and still prevail in the case. So it's all to say, you know, folks like Leonard Leo at the Federalist Society, former White House counsel Don McGahn, and obviously Senate Republicans, probably most notably Mitch McConnell, they're taking victory laps as we speak. And in fact, there was just uh, McConnell gave some some words to that effect in, a, in an interview recently, you know, for successfully reshaping the court, um, you know, in the immediate aftermath of Justice Scalia's death. So maybe we can kind of talk about how we got here. I mean, it feels like it's been one crazy momentous historic development after the next. But did anyone here like suspect when they got the news that Justice Scalia died that we would be in this 
position right now. I mean, it felt like the court no. was on the verge of becoming a, a liberal majority for the first time. <laughs> yeah, no, not absolutely not. <laughs> I think this has definitely been a, a something that it has always always been a possibility, but this is really the first year it's fully come in, snapped into full fruition, that this court is fundamentally changed. Um, I mean, even last year when we were at the end of the term and Amy Coney Barrett had just begun, we were talking about like, oh, there was more consensus than people expected. And there were more rulings that had unusual lineups. That is certainly very different this year. Well, so much of that also was that last term honestly, it wasn't that big of a term in terms of, I mean, there were big cases, right? But it wasn't, it wasn't this term <laughs> in terms of what the is? kind of topics they were, they were handling, um, right. you know, and I think that leads us to, you know, I think another big thread for this, this term is just kind of the role of precedent and how it might be changing on this court. Well, before we get to precedent, uh, to, to your point about last term, not being as momentous. They were narrower rulings. And they, the thing is, if you go back and look, they were pretty divisive issues. I mean, some of them had to do with, you know, controversial policies, uh, you know, anti-LGBTQ discrimination in the foster care system. But the court was resolving a lot of these really narrow, narrowly. I think some of the people that I've spoken to have have remarked that it's it's important to treat this term as opposed to last term as really the first full term with this supermajority. The first full term where this supermajority can set the docket. Because, you know, Amy Coney Barrett, she joined um, at the beginning of the term when a lot of the cases had already been set. Right. Well, now, before this term, this was a court that knew it had the votes in a lot of these big abortion cases, big guns cases. So that could possibly explain why it took a little bit of time and not that much time. I mean, it, what, it was one term for this conservative majority to get up to speed. But that actually right. leads us back to what Natalie was asking about, which is this um, real change on whether or not precedents are actually safe. Like, what's up with stare decisis these days? And I think some of that comes from the comfort of having a supermajority on the court that they can make big swings. Absolutely. I mean, that's the through line in so many of these cases is that Precedent is giving way in case after case to kind of these first principles ideas on the part of the court's uh, conservative justices. I mean, we've we've heard for years now Justice Clarence Thomas kind of write in some of his you know dissents or concurrences that he thinks that the role of stare decisis is kind of overstated in a lot of these constitutional cases. Well, now he writing on behalf of a, the court's majority has pretty much said that as much. In some of his decisions, like in, you know, uh, Bruin, and obviously he wrote this concurrence in in uh, the Dobbs case overturning Roe. Um, and so that's all to say that for now on, yeah, I don't think anyone should suspect that the uh, uh, this conservative majority, this particular court, is going to defer in any way to precedents that it disagrees with. There's really no evidence to support that reliance. So, um, Jimmy, what are we going to get? We're not going to get a bunch of precedent um, being continually upheld, apparently, if this if this holds true in future terms. Are we just going to then know, hey, what we expect here is originalism? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what the court said, is that when it comes to the constitutional cases, 
um, involving, you know, the scope or like what's protected under substantive due process and what's protected under the Second Amendment, the court is not going to look pa- back to the court's own decisions. It's going to look to the original public meaning, and 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 in order to discover that, um, you see both in the in the abortion case and in the gun case is a kind of, you know history lesson, if you will, of kind of surveying the record. And if you read Alito's uh, abortion opinion, he goes back to, I believe it's like the 13th century in the legal treatises back then to kind of inform the historical kind of perspective on some of these cases. Is abortion part of the nation's tradition? Is it not? And uh, that was the case for Thomas as well in the gun decision. So, you know, litigants should be absolutely on notice that if they are involved in constitutional litigation, that they are going to have to make those arguments. They're going to have to appeal to this idea about what people in the late 18th century thought about particular provisions of law, as opposed to what you know the Supreme Court said in uh, ruling from the 70s or the 60s that has just completely given way. Historians, it's your time to shine. The Supreme Court is listening. Um, I feel like this is going to become a little niche area that people really dive into Um, it's probably worth pointing out too that like you know a a lot of critics a lot of progressives don't necessarily think that this is like a good faith exercise i mean they're they have been criticized for you know uh you know allegedly cherry picking the history that they like to support the underlying conclusion that they like that's all to say that this is the method that they have announced and some believe that they're not always fair in how they're actually carrying it out Yeah, that teases a little bit of what I'm going to want to talk about as we close out our show later uh, in this episode uh, about how legitimate is the court and how is the perception shifting. Um, But before we get to that, a couple more things I wanted to ask you, Jimmy, while we're sort of setting the stage for sort of big takeaways before we get into some of the meat of the cases. What do you think about just I know we've talked about the supermajority. Are there any other shifts in power that have been noticeable this term that are different from what we've seen in the past? Well, I've talked about Thomas, and Thomas is a really good example because, you know, here's a guy who has been on the court since the early 90s and was considered a fringe justice, someone who kind of would write these solo dissents joined by no, no other members of the court calling for revisiting of this precedent and that precedent. Well, now these solo dissents have become majority Supreme Court decisions, and he can now command that majority because he has like-minded justices on the court in the form of um, the three Trump appointees. But beyond that, I think, you know, he he also, and here's a little bit of internal court dynamics, you know, he, since the retirement of Justice Kennedy, he is the senior most associate justice. Now, that's not to say that that's like the most important position in the world, but it does have some like real substantive uh, upshots to it, which is if for whatever reason, like in um, the abortion case, Roberts is in the minority. I believe it's Thomas as the senior associate justice who gets to pick who writes. And the author of the decision can oftentimes be a really important way to influence the direction of the law because the court doesn't just decide the cases in front of them. They decide the law of the land. So that's that's one kind of interesting thing. I'm wondering if you guys noticed any other interesting dynamics this term. I, I think what you talked about is a little bit what I was thinking um, just from a different angle, which is 
this doesn't feel like Robert's court necessarily anymore. Um, like you said, he was had a separate concurrence in the Dobbs decision on abortion. There have been some other areas where it feels like he's more sidelined than he's been in the past because of this more conservative majority um, that's that's on the court. So I think that ties in with with Thomas's rise to prominence. So why don't we talk about some of these cases, right? So um, we're kind of speaking in, in abstracts here. Let's narrow in on what the court actually decided in this landmark term. Uh, Haley, you want to kick things off for us? Absolutely. First, I wanted us to look at some of these massive religion rulings. That was a big a big theme that we saw this term. There were three in particular that were pretty noteworthy. Um, and those, of course, include Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, a.k.a. the case of the praying coach. As you recall, in this one, the court held that the school district violated the First Amendment by suspending a high school coach who insisted on praying and pretty publicly it wasn't like, oh, he's off in a corner and, you know, quietly, whatever students would like to join, please do. It was it was a pretty big display of prayer. Um, and he was fired for that. And the Supreme Court said that was not correct. That is absolutely fine to to get out there on the 50 yard line and really get after it. Um, <laughs> and then there's also. Carson versus Macon, in which the court ruled in favor of parents in Maine challenging a tuition assistance program in the state that excluded sectarian schools, so religious schools, and held that the program, and therefore the state, was discriminating against religious institutions in violation of the Constitution's free exercise clause. I'm and then sensing a theme here with all of these rulings, yeah. but what was the third one? Absolutely. And then the last one here is there's the court's ruling on religious flags in Boston. In that case, which is Shirtleff et al. versus Boston, the high court found that the city's flag raising program isn't government speech and doesn't have immunity from free speech challenges, which ultimately means that the city was wrong in denying a religious camp's request to fly its Christian flag at City Hall. As Amber mentioned, you know, sensing a theme here, pretty, pretty kind of obvious. But looking back at the decisions, what do you think stands out the most about the rulings? Broadly speaking, it's clear these decisions made it easier for religious expression in public spaces, like schools and municipal buildings. And that really you know, further blurs the line between church and state. And specifically with the main case, it majorly complicates publicly funded tuition assistance. In his dissent, uh, Justice Stephen Breyer pointed out that private schools often have policies that allow them to do things like fire faculty or deny admission to students based on their sexual orientation or their religion. And that runs afoul of the Establishment Clause of the Constitution, according to Justice Breyer. It also means the Supreme Court is essentially telling states that they absolutely have to fund religious education that, you know, theoretically could contradict the beliefs of a whole slew of folks. Yeah, this is such a huge topic that I think flies under the radar of sometimes when you have terms that, you know, have like abortion cases or gun cases, but... 
the expansion of you know the free exercise clause and the rights um, of religious litigants has been a huge trend um, in recent years at the Supreme Court. Why don't we turn to another trend, and that is the Supreme Court's uh, continuous decision chipping away at the power of some administrative agencies. So on the on the final day before summer recess uh, yesterday, uh, we got the decision in West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Agency. Um, this was a really big six to three ruling that was written by Chief Justice Roberts, and basically the court said. The EPA didn't have the authority under the existing law to implement sweeping regulations on the energy system. These were regulations um, you know, adopted during the Obama years that were meant to basically shift from high-emitting sources of greenhouse gases like coal power plants to kind of lower-emitting ones. And this is part of the, the EPA's efforts to address uh, the effects of climate change. The agency had sought to use its authority under a provision of the Clean Air Act. That's a law from 1970. But Chief Justice Roberts said that this law didn't actually, you know, it didn't clearly give the EPA the authority to impose these sweeping regulations. It was a decision decried by, you know, not just the three liberal dissenters, obviously, but you know, environmentalists, Democrats as well, who say it basically kneecaps the EPA's ability to do anything to confront the existential threat of climate change. I mean, climate change is a big enough issue for this to have made our list of really notable cases. But I know this is actually potentially an even broader ruling than just about the EPA and climate change. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. I mean, it does seem like climate change is a huge topic. And yes, that's probably what everyone should be focused on. But you're right that um, it also has broader implications for how the government works and you know what they refer to as the administrative state. So this is the you know alphabet soup of federal agencies that you know not only regulate against pollution but you know police financial institutions, enforce consumer protection laws, so on and so forth. So the court in its decision by Roberts says that these agencies can't use broad authorizing language like in the Clean Air Act, to implement what they call major policies without some kind of explicit statement in the law as to that particular issue at hand. So this has become known as the major questions doctrine, the idea that if Congress doesn't clearly, like explicitly lay out exactly the subject of the regulation in its legislation, then these agencies can't adopt these major policies. Um, in the absence of that. So, yeah, I mean, this is, we've already seen kind of how this major questions doctrine has played out. I mean, the court used similar reasoning earlier this year when it blocked the Biden administration's efforts to basically roll out its vaccine or testing mandate for large employers. The court said um, the Biden administration it couldn't use this old um, Occupational Safety Hazard Act or, or whatever it's called, the OSHA law, basically. It's a workplace safety law as the basis for that that you know very broad um, program. So you can see how it applies to a number of different situations. This doctrine, and yeah, I mean it, it was a it was obviously a really big ruling. I think we're going to hear much more about this in future years. Um, you know, it's going to be tough to define exactly what is a major question for starters, <laughs> and then you're going to have the a lot of things that come up where um, the government really wants to act and they feel like 
maybe the biggest experts are in the uh, regulatory side. So that's going to be hard for them to weigh in. Yeah. And, and the point's been made that it's also not clear like to what degree of specificity Congress needs to write laws that give agencies the powers to kind of like, on the one hand, you know, you, you want to um, tell agencies that they can do something, but on the other Sometimes you want to give them a little bit of flexibility if it's a right. problem that you haven't foreseen yet. And so, you know, critics of the of the ruling that came out are like, look, the the way the modern federal government works is these expert agencies have to deal with a lot of, you know, unpredictable challenges and use their expertise to come up with the means to address those things. You know, if, if in the Supreme Court is making it a little bit more difficult for Congress to be able to delegate that authority. Yeah, I you know, <laughs> You think we can't get any bigger, but now let's talk about the Second Amendment. So uh, the the hits really keep on rolling this term in terms of just hugely impactful rulings. The one I want to talk about is uh, about two New York residents who challenged a century-old New York state law that restricted gun carry licenses to only those who could show proper cause. So that was a pretty high standard to meet in New York state. The holding in this one was an unsurprising 6-3 lineup again, guys, um, that ruled that the New York law was unconstitutional. Clarence Thomas penned the majority opinion. He said that there's basically no other constitutional rights he could think of that require the people looking to exercise those rights to prove some special cause to the gov- to a government official to be able to do so. So that was the basis of his reasoning there. The ruling says for the first time that the individual right to bear arms applies outside the home. So that is a immediate, big, expansive thing that we're now facing in America. It also lays out essentially a new standard for evaluating gun restrictions. It's whether the regulation is consistent with America's historical tradition of firearm regulation. So that's the originalism history we were talking about at the beginning of the show. And I think this one really, we're going to see major impacts right away. I mean, it greatly expands the scope of the Second Amendment. And this is all happening at a time when Gun violence is rampant in America. Um, That's sort of what the dissent focused on, what I just said there, that uh, the dissent was written by Breyer, joined by Kagan and Sotomayor. No surprises in lineups uh, for these big cases. Breyer pointed out that over 45,000 Americans were killed by firearms in 2020. And while the case was at the high court about guns, there were several mass shootings that took place, including in Buffalo, Philadelphia, Uvalde, all the ones people have seen in the news in recent months. So the liberal justices just question whether or not it's wise in a ruling that expands gun rights and curtails states from taking action to do do that at a time where we have a massive gun violence problem. Yeah, the timing of this one was was really, really noteworthy. There's there's I mean, no I, getting around that. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, even if they had decided something like this a year ago or two years ago, this gun violence problem has been ongoing in America. So, um, you know, it, it's just to me when I thought about this and I think we talked about it a bit on Pro Se as well. It really laid bare the sharp divide in America between people who want more gun regulation and people who want an expansive Second Amendment. And no matter where you side on this issue, you can read an opinion that's for you because they are very stark (laughs) in their language and their reasoning and really lay out the two big sides of this debate in America. Yeah. So finally, we have the ruling of all rulings here. 
v dobbs case uh in the event you somehow were able to remove yourself from the news cycle this past week i'm jealous uh but this was the abortion ruling of course and so specifically in this one the court upheld a mississippi abortion ban and then also overturned the constitutional right to abortion established almost 50 years ago in Roe versus Wade. So this was a six to three vote to uphold the Mississippi law. And then five justices also took it a step further and voted to undo Roe. And so in this case, Mississippi had banned most abortions after 15 weeks which is long before a fetus is considered viable. And that sort of restriction was previously unconstitutional. Now it is good to go. This decision obviously means a lot of states will be banning or already have banned abortion. Um, But it also raises a ton of new legal questions about things like states' ability to do so under their individual constitutions, But even on top of that, their authority to restrict things like travel to other states to receive reproductive care, um, surveillance, how they're going to enforce this. Uh, We talked about this on Pro Se this week, but it's a lot of huge questions for companies and employers and the extensive list of parties involved in the healthcare system in general. It's just this this was a, a massive, massive ruling. Yeah, I mean, it it can almost not be overstated, which seems weird in a time where this was dominating the news cycle. And sometimes when that happens, you're like, all right, enough already about the Supreme Court thing. But this one does feel like a big sea change for all the reasons you said, Haley. Um, we broke down some of them on Pro Se. So if anybody wants to listen to us talk about it for a whole half an hour, um, <laughs> they can head over to our last episode. But yeah, I think this was certainly the will be the biggest case remembered from this term, I would say. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I, I got off the phone with a, a, a conservative lawyer who was kind of reflecting on the, on the term. And you know, he said that Roe versus Wade was the conservative legal movement's white whale for so many years. They had been gunning for it, essentially. And this was finally the term that delivered on this decades-long pursuit of overturning the constitutional right to abortion. So yeah, that just absolutely cannot be overstated. And the litigation that has come out of this has been dizzying. It's been hard to follow. Just the instant, you know, uh, battle all across the country in state houses and state courts. And it's been difficult to follow. But, you know, the, the, the repercussions on the ground are just so huge. And it underscores the stakes of this with how many millions of people are affected um, by reproductive rights issues. And yeah, I mean, we don't have yeah, enough time to kind of dive all into it today, but this was probably the biggest one. I think it also underscores the stakes. Um, and we've talked about this with several of our big cases that we just ran through, where the stakes go beyond just the instant issue, as if the instant issues weren't big enough. Um, abortion access and rights for women are obviously tremendously important in people's lives and will have a lot of repercussions. But beyond this, the underlying right to privacy that Roe versus Wade enshrined is important to many other things that um, go on in our society. So we're going to see potentially a lot of continued fallout about the erosion of this, uh, the elimination of this precedent. 
Well, should we just mention, like, a drop a line here just Justice to point out Thomas. that in his concurrence, um, Justice Clarence Thomas, yeah, he, you're absolutely right. He basically said that the court should revisit all of the precedents that are based upon, you know, a similar constitutional finding of a right to privacy that goes to contraception, that goes to same-sex intimacy, that goes to same-sex marriage, Um and, you know, as our, our guest on the term, Carolyn Shapiro, pointed out, you know, he he didn't necessarily say that there was, you know, the Constitution doesn't protect these things, but that they should rather be found in, like, another provision of the Constitution, the, the or at least another clause, the privilege. That's a little bit too in the weeds. That's all to say, um, you know, the, the majority tried to assure, reassure people that we're just deciding abortion, but you're already seeing the continuous effort among the litigants out there, among them, you know, uh, the conservative Republican attorney general of Texas, Ken Paxton, say we are going to start chipping away at more rights than just um, abortion that are based on the similar canon of uh, substantive due process. So, you know, this is this is a huge watershed ruling that we will only we're only beginning to understand the, the consequences of it. last few weeks and frankly months have been dominated by these big opinions that we just talked about. Um, But I think looking back at the term as a whole, we'd be remiss to not touch on the emergency docket, um, also often called the shadow docket, although I feel like it's important to point out here that that is uh, deemed a pejorative term uh, by by some. (laughs) By the justices mostly. By some of of the justices, (laughs) by mostly, I'll be honest, the conservative wing of the the bench. Um, Well, Kagan uses it, right? I mean, Kagan's like, she's on, she's on board with the shadow docket. Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to, we're going to discuss that. Okay. Well, (laughs) let's get into why this is so divisive, because if the justices themselves can't even agree on what to call it, uh, why are people upset about it? Okay. So the, this, the shadow docket emergency docket is where, you know, the court issues decisions unsigned, often unexplained in cases, you know, on an expedited basis, um, often because it's been an emergency application. Um, although the, the, the decision as to whether or not all these cases have been emergencies, um, I think is t- at the heart of, you know, why this, the use of this tool has been so critiqued. Um, you know, we saw it a lot last year. It was a big issue last term, but it also really kind of dominated the beginning and middle of this term, although I know it can seem like ages (laughs) since the beginning of this term. Um, You know, just to kind of point out really quickly a few of the big rulings that we saw on the emergency docket um, in September, which was the week in specifically the week before the term started. So I'm going to count it unofficially for this term. It counts. Um, yeah. I can't was, even remember back to September at this point. <laughs> right? <laughs> but um, they kind of kicked it off with a bang with a five to four decision to not block Texas's law banning abortions after six weeks. And obviously this was before we heard the Dobbs case, which was set um, to, to go a, a few weeks later. 
Um, January, the court used the emergency docket also to weigh in on Biden's vaccine or testing rules. Again, something that we did see, uh, you know, a case on the merits of during this term. But before that case was decided, you know, the court used this the emergency docket to, you know, basically allow a narrow rule targeting the healthcare industry to continue, but to stay a broader rule for private businesses with at least 100 employees. This was a huge deal, you know, right in the midst of, you know, the pandemic. Um, I, I, you know, and it was a huge uh, kind of hit for the Biden administration, to, to be quite honest. Um, February, also, the court used uh, the shadow docket to reinstate an Alabama congressional map that was found to by a lower court to be discriminatory. And in April, the court also reinstated a Trump water rule um, while it was being appealed, kind of similar to, you know, in along the veins of, you know, deregulation uh, with environmental protections. Um, here again, the court overruled a lower court. Uh, so both the congressional map, the Trump water rule, these were like highly controversial decisions in highly sensitive kind of topics. And basically decided without much of, a, you know, reasoning in, in these largely unsigned opinions. Right. I, I remember Kagan wrote a basically a furious dissent in the um, allowing uh, the I guess it was HB 20, the Texas law that yeah. kind of outsources enforcement of the six week abortion ban to kind of what some people would call bounty hunters, you know, that would file these lawsuits against them. And she basically said that, yes, the, the court was abusing the shadow docket and just allowing this, you know, subversion of the court's own precedent to take effect without so much as oral argument or anything like that. And then you mentioned the water rule case. I was looking back because that one sounded familiar. That was one where Chief Justice Roberts actually joined Kagan in criticizing the, in that so little distinction here to go back to the emergency shadow docket discussion it, when kagan's just writing for herself and the other liberal justices she says the kind of the pejorative shadow docket but when she gets chief justice to sign on to the opinion then she switches and uses the term emergency docket but that's all <laughs> i to think say. that's how he she got him to sign on to yeah, that one he was not about to <laughs> he was not about to start using that yeah no you're right and kagan has been i think Honestly, the most vocal on the bench uh, this term, you know, kind of criticizing from internally uh, the use of the majority's uh, use of the shadow docket. Um, but she's not been the only one talking about it. And and you're right. Like it was it was it was a big deal that Robert signed on to her dissent in that last really that we were talking about. Um, but, you know, this has been a big spotlight on the court lately. Um, right before the term kicked off. Um, there was a major and contentious Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on the court's use of the emergency docket, um, you know, hitting back at the lack of transparency, the confusion that sometimes these decisions cause in the lower courts, and frankly, you know, the, the look of partisan divide on the bench in how these rulings are used. Um, so there was, you know, there was there was that spotlight. Uh, similarly, Biden's commission studying Supreme Court reform. Remember that 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 happened this term. Yeah. Uh, uh, they also adopted a final report uh, that called for more transparency on the shadow docket. Um, so you know, this was like a big thread, a big vein in the beginning of the term. Um, and you know, we also heard 
several justices, Justices Alito um, notably, yeah. uh, speak publicly about the criticism um, and kind of blasting back at critics and the media uh, for kind of painting what Justice Alito termed a sinister and threatening picture of the court. Um, and I think, you know, he he and and some of the other conservative justices have, you know, basically been saying like, look, you're you're kind of like painting this awful picture of of something that's kind of just business as usual for us. Um, you know, it's the the use of the emergency docket. True, has been around for quite a bit, um, but it has been using more. And I think it's really noticeable that there's this sense from Kagan kind of publicly calling out um, her colleagues on this issue. I guess I would just say, like, I can understand the defense. Like, you know, we're a Supreme Court. Things come to us in an emergency posture. We need the flexibility to rule on things quickly. But of course, you know, the critics would would point out that you're not you're only supposed to do this for like certain procedural cases when there's no other way to avoid it, not to actually make substantive changes in law through shadow docket rulings that don't go through argument and full briefing. I mean, it was during the pandemic that um, after, I believe it was last term, so this wouldn't necessarily apply to this term, but it was the ruling, um, basically it was a five to four shadow docket ruling with Roberts again in dissent, um, where the majority that was joined by then like really new Justice Amy Coney Barrett had basically struck down some COVID-19 uh, restrictions. So that was a huge deal when it came to some of the the legality of the public health measures. But the court didn't really announce any clear standards for that case. And so, you know, as the litigation was playing out all over the country about the legality of these COVID-19 measures, there was no clear instruction from the Supreme Court because they didn't, you know, actually take the time to go through their normal deliberative process. Um, so that just kind of underscores how this can be a pretty, you know, tricky and thorny issue. Yeah, that actually puts me in perfect mind of how I wanted to end our discussion today, because let's end as messy as this term was and talk about something that is the topic of a million headlines and think pieces and, and everything else that's out there about the court. And that's this question. Have recent events undermined the legitimacy of the Supreme Court? So that can mean anything you want it to mean. According to every think piece I've ever read, they draw in lots of things to question the potential, you know, erosion of the legitimacy of the court. Um, so it can be everything. Is this a from yes what, or no question? Or yeah. I think we can be slightly more nuanced. Maybe we might need that. Yeah. Uh, but no, I think it's interesting because the arguments are so wide ranging. It's stuff about the shadow docket that we were just talking about. It's things about um, the end of stare decisis, which I'll definitely want to get into a little more in this discussion, but also the po political side, the process that has seeded some recent justices. There have been a lot of process concerns there, from particularly from the left. So lots to sort of think about, about are we in a, in a good state of affairs for how people view the Supreme Court right now? Um, for how people view the Supreme Court right now, I mean, I just got a, a I just saw a poll by uh, Reuters in Ipsos, I believe it's called, that basically says public opinion of the Supreme Court right now is like really at a near all time low, yeah. and that um, 
I think it was 54% um, of respondents. Just give me one second. I'm actually going to pull that up so I'm not like just shooting from the hip here. So they found that 57% of respondents um, viewed the Supreme Court negatively, which is not exactly, you know, a vote of confidence of an institution. In fact, those are numbers that you would more likely associate with some, an institution like Congress than, say, the Supreme Court. Yeah, but those numbers are, I think, in line to what we've been seeing in a lot of other polls just over the years regarding the Supreme Court and its kind of reputation, how people view it. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think... I think in large part, part of that is also just the sheer spotlight that's been placed on the Supreme Court in the last few years. I yeah. mean, look, how many new justices have we gotten over, what, sure. five years? I mean, that's it, there's been a number of additions and, you know. Well, like yeah, it's been a fast and furious that. time, for sure. I mean, a fun fact is that I believe it's like from 1994 when Breyer joined to like 2005, I guess, when Roberts joined, that's 11 years, there was no change in the composition of the court. It was the exact same nine old people. And from 2005 to 2022, I mean, you know, what's that like? I, I can't even count how many justices have been added to the court. So you're right. And then a lot add of in the political, frankly, and very controversial uh, cases that they've been taking up in recent well, terms. Yeah, let's and, get and into the, that, Natalie. The, and the, the public's just part. paying more attention, right? I think that's and, right. Well, I think this leads me to, I sort of wanted to talk about a couple of big bullet points of why legitimacy in the eyes of the public may have eroded. Well, let's start with the Dobbs leak because... You know, as everyone remembers, several months before we got the official abortion ruling, we already had a pretty good idea of what the justices were going to do because a full draft version of the majority opinion was leaked to the press. Um, leaks have happened before. I want to make that clear at the Supreme Court. But this is the first time we've gotten a full draft ruling. And I think that says something, one, about how divisive and unusual the ruling turned out to be. But also the leak itself garnered so much attention from the intrigue of who did it to the novelty of the Supreme Court facing this kind of breach that my question to you is actually, does the leak say something bigger about how the court is just losing its norms and controls that someone in its orbit would leak in the first place? Why don't you take that one, Haley? That sounds like a big question. I'm going to pass. <laughs> I'm sorry. I said it all up to fail. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me pull up a think piece here and just read it read it to you all. I could give us I could give it a shot. Okay, it it kind of goes to something Thomas said in one of his public appearances after the leak, which is that in the kind of cloistered world of the Supreme Court, this thing this was completely inconceivable that something like this could happen. Um, you know the justices they are they you know it's a very um, tight-lipped institution. There, you're right. There have been leaks before, but they're never on the scale that this was an entire document. And Thomas was basically like, "If you were to tell me that one sentence of one opinion leaked, I would have said no. There's no way that could ever happen." And so that just goes to show how big of a bombshell this was. And of course, I can't speak to you know whatever the motives are, whatever it says about the the culture at the Supreme Court, which is clearly. Um, you know, behind closed doors. However, uh, we know that there's a, a pretty intense investigation ongoing at the Supreme yeah. Court. 
where the marshal is trying to kind of sniff out the leaker. And uh, there was some reporting, and we, we recorded an episode about it, about um, requests for clerks' cell records to actually try and get to the bottom of who leaked this. And, you know, can you imagine what that does to a workplace culture if your employer is demanding Absolutely. personal sensitive records? You know, and I and- think... I think for me, the broader, you know, when I take a little step back, which is kind of the point of the show to not be quite in the thick of it like we have been all term. When I take a little step back and think about it, the shadow docket and the leak all feel of a piece where it's things that feel like they're breaking down in ways that we maybe haven't seen in the past. You know, we've always had an emergency docket. It feels like it's been very active in recent years. We've had leaks, but they feel like they've been small. It just feels like things are starting to snowball for the court, at least in terms of how people are perceiving it. Now, the court may say and some justices may say that, no, it's not nearly as bad as the media is making it out to be. But that doesn't change the feeling of the people. So I'm a bit worried about the court from that perspective. And that leads me to another worry. So let's just let's talk all about stare decisis now. I've been dying to do it this whole episode. Um, Roe v. Wade was the law of the land for 50 years. More than that, it had already been revisited in the 90s in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and the core protection of a woman's right to choose was left intact, but no longer. So I just wanted to dig into some of the comments that Roberts, with his concurrence, and the liberals in their dissent in Dobbs said about what that means for stare decisis, precedent, and the court's future. Roberts had this to say. Surely we should adhere closely to the principles of judicial restraint here, where the broader path the court chooses entails repudiating a constitutional right we have not only previously recognized, but also expressly reaffirmed applying the doctrine of stare decisis. So Roberts is like, yo, everybody, stare decisis is important. Let's not over, you know, overturn that. Let's not turn away from that idea. The liberals put it even more bluntly. In overturning Roe and Casey, this court betrays its guiding principles. They also called it cavalier to disregard stare decisis. And uh, I'm going to do one more long quote, and then you guys can tell me how you feel about it. This is, again, from the dissent. The court reverses course today for one reason and one reason only, because the composition of this court has changed. Stare decisis, this court has often said, contributes to the actual and perceived integrity of the judicial process. By ensuring that decisions are found in the law rather than in the proclivities of individuals. Today, the proclivities of individuals rule. The court departs from its obligation to faithfully and impartially apply the law. I never thought I would read part of an opinion that was so direct. Yeah, that that quote really jumps off the page. I mean, it's the perfect distillation of how the liberal justices feel about this new conservative majority, that they're not actually doing law they're doing power. They're doing, you know, brute numbers um, in pulling the law in the direction that they see fit. Um, but I mean, it it definitely goes to show that there are there are almost some personal elements to this as well. When you consider that, like, for liberal dissenters, they consider this to be an act of hubris, right? The idea that these new conservative justices know more than their predecessors did. Um, in fact. Part of her, um, Kagan's, that is, dissent in the Dobbs case that I also thought was interesting was talking about the plurality uh, opinion that reaffirmed Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And Kagan goes on at length about how this 
core of three justices who were all appointed by Republican presidents, Kennedy, O'Connor, Souter, had kind of found a way to uphold the principles of stare decisis. Um, and, you know, at, at great at great cost to their reputations in the eyes of a lot of conservatives at the time. And, and Kagan, you know, has these really interesting lines, lines about their wisdom. And, you know, you can just tell that for the Democratic appointees on the court, they feel like this this new court is just running roughshod over the work of their predecessors in the continuity in the law. I can't help but think of this the same way I did about the gun ruling we were talking about earlier, where it just lays bare the broader landscape of American sentiment and how divided a nation we really are. Because from the perspective of the conservatives that were in the majority in the Dobbs ruling, they think it was perfectly justified to not um, go with the doctrine of stare decisis because they viewed Roe versus Wade as a plainly uh, incorrectly decided case, a la Brown versus Board of Education, that we should be able to change things that are clearly wrong. And that's their stance. And it is just an absolute opposite worldview that you're seeing from you know, Kagan and Breyer and Sotomayor in their dissent. And I think that really just shines a spotlight on where America is right now. Yeah, and it just it just feels like the public in America are just upset. I don't know if that's the right word. We were I, I know think we, it were is. Tr- we were we were trying to talk that I know behind the scenes about like if there were any lighthearted moments, which usually we can come up with a few each term, but this term just felt really serious and really just not that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were so many big issues. It was such a divisive set of issues. I don't think we had quite as much fun as, frankly, we sometimes have. And I was thinking about, you know, can we get back to on track next term uh, for maybe some more alliances on the court, less of the 6-3 that we're seeing so much of? And uh, I don't know, guys, I, the prospects to me, are looking a little grim. Just wanted yeah. to run down some stuff for the future. Um, we already know next year is kind of shaping up to be another, I mean, you think it couldn't happen two years in a row, another blockbuster term, but it, it looks that way. Uh, there's cases teed up that could give state legislatures vast power to draw district lines and set election rules. There's a Voting Rights Act case from Alabama. There's a pair of cases challenging race-based affirmative action programs in higher education. And there's a discrimination case over whether a wedding web designer should be able to post on her website she won't design for same-sex couples. So a lot of things that we've seen ruled on in various iterations in the past are coming back to us again, and they are hot-button social issues. So we may have another doozy of a term teed up for October. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't. There doesn't seem to be any evidence that like this court is going to take it slow anytime soon. I mean, all signs point to like full throttle, um, taking up affirmative action, potentially reversing the 2003 decision in Grutter versus Bollinger in that case. And then if we turn to the, the wedding case, I mean, that was a case where uh, the court just recently revisited that issue in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case when right. Kennedy was on it. Of course, they kind of had to punt on it because they couldn't find a, a clear majority. It was a narrow ruling on procedural grounds. Well, sort of procedural grounds. And I suspect that when it comes back up, there's not going to be anything narrow about it. It's going to be probably a very kind of straight ideological split 
um, in that case as well. So I, I, I think, yeah, I, I think that this court has shown only more interest in kind of biting off some of these really big issues. And like, what is the effect of that in the long term? Because I, I, you know, I've been covering the court for several years now, and this term more than any other people who like don't really follow legal news and just follow the news generally have been reaching out to me like what's like why is the supreme court like in the news every day with a huge (laughs) and they're like confused because it's like it just seems like these rulings are falling from the sky and you know having these impacts on millions and millions of people like what's the long-term effect of that if every june for the next 10 years the supreme court is like reshaping or at least affecting broad swaths of american society in one ruling after the other i mean it seems like yeah that seems like a pretty big deal especially when you consider these are these people are not elected these people have life tenure Uh, i don't know i don't know what the long-term effects of that are upside is that the profile of your job is going nothing but up jimmy so uh plenty for you to do here at law 360 Uh, and plenty for us to write about i hope jimmy i hope you're going to get a lot of sleep over the next few months because <laughs> that's right rest up jimmy because we will be back um could you just tell that to year. my 11 uh, month old just so she's on the <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's not gonna help unfortunately but i i think it's been really nice to be together guys and talk through all of the huge issues that we've seen throughout the term this year that's right this was fun i, I kind of want to do it again Yeah, Supergroup, we will reunite. There are many Avengers movies, so we will have reprisals of this in the future. Um, I also want to give a couple programming notes as we end up our show today. Pro Se is off next week for the 4th of July holiday, but we will be back with more regular episodes the following week. And also, this concludes season three of The Term. Um, But The Term will, of course, kick off with a new season later this summer to get everybody ready for what will be another blockbuster term, we think. So stay tuned for that. We also have a bunch of people to thank for today's special episode, including everyone who joined me on our super team, also our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. And for contributing reporters, I'm just going to say everyone at Law360. I feel like we've had so many talented reporters covering all aspects of the Supreme Court term, the oral arguments, the rulings themselves, and fallout now that things are happening in lower courts in reaction to these rulings. So thanks to everybody for contributing. You really make the show possible for us every day. And also we want to thank our um, music providers, which are Slender Beats, Silent Partner, and Kelly Marcano, who also did our jazzy mashup tune this week. So appreciate that a lot, Kelly. Haven't heard it yet, but I'm excited to listen to that just for uh, that It's going to become my ringtone. It's my new favorite <laughs> thing. So love that. And... With that, if you like our shows, either the term or pro se, leave us a written review where you listen to podcasts or check out our website, go to law360.com for more information. And we will talk to you all soon. <laughs>